Let's turn together in our copies of God's Word to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, looking this evening at verses 5 and 6. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Let's go to the throne of grace together, asking for God's blessing. O Lord, our Lord, how blessed, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are worthy to be praised greatly in heaven and on earth in this age and the age to come. And we would be those, Lord, who would come feeling unworthy in ourselves, but feeling wholly worthy in Jesus Christ to dwell in your temple, to taste and see your goodness afresh. afresh. And as we come to this passage of your holy scripture now, Lord, would you work in us a love for your law, a desire to put to death all that is earthly, and to set our minds upon the things of heaven, because that is where our Savior, Jesus Christ, is reigning in heavenly glory. May the Lord Jesus Christ be the preacher of this sermon, and may we hear his voice and follow him for his glory to enjoy him now and forever. We ask in his blessed name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Amen, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. A passage like this one is convicting to the godliest believer as it confronts us with the fact that although we are in Christ and have all that Christ has achieved for us, we still struggle with remaining corruption, remaining corruption within our hearts and not just in this earthly realm. And sadly, it's all too easy to preach a sermon like this, wagging the finger and bludgeoning the congregation to do more, and to try harder, and to be better. But this is a command, we must remember, of grace. It is grace that our Savior would tell us how sinful our sin is, and to tell us what to do with it by the power of His Holy Spirit. To come to a passage like this, and to make benefit of it, we need to review, believer, who you are in the Lord Jesus. Back in chapter 1, in verse 2, how Paul addresses the Colossians and us, all who are in Christ, as saints who are in Christ, and all that saints means, we go back to the, to the very first sermon of this series to show all the, the glorious benefits attendant to that little word, saint, having all that is in Jesus Christ for us by his grace. And as saints in verse 2, chapter 1, we have grace from God, and that grace from God gives us peace with God, his friendship, and his covenant. Chapter 1, verse 5, 
we see there that we have a hope laid up for us in heaven, a hope and inheritance that is ours even now, that we have in, that we have in possession now, which enables our earthly pilgrimage. Chapter 1, verses 12 and following. How God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So a passage like that one helps us to see that as we go about battling our sin, we have a radically new relationship to our sin. As Gaffin says, Sin remains, but it does not reign. Sin is no longer lords over us because the, the power of it has been broken in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are no longer citizens of the realm destined for destruction, the kingdom of darkness. We have been transferred out of that by sovereign grace into God's kingdom, able to put sin to death with promise of success by his grace. Chapter 1, verse 18 how our Savior Jesus Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And we saw there in that sermon how Christ as the beginning of resurrection life is better translated a pioneer who leads us into resurrection life. What he has in himself is raised, he gives to those in union with him resurrection life, whether on the inside in this age or bodily in the age to come. Chapter 1 and verse 20 makes reference to how Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross, and that, that blood, verse 22, has reconciled us to our God and Father. Christ has brought friendship where there was enmity, holy enmity on God's side because he hates sin, and an unholy enmity in us because of our, because of our sin. Christ has brought reconciliation and peace. Chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. How we know the riches of Jesus Christ as the revealed mystery, where all that Abraham and Moses and David would have seen from a distance, would have longed for, and would have known in type and shadow and ceremony, we get to know up close in fulfillment because the mystery has been revealed. Christ as the revealed mystery is not just one who dwells in heaven, but he by the power of his spirit dwells in our hearts. And as if that were not amazing enough, his indwelling in our hearts is the hope, the foretaste of glory. As good as what we have now, believer, is, it will get so much better. Chapter 2, verse 3 how in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and since we are in Christ, those treasures are ours for the use and for the taking. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, how the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ, and we have been filled in him. That fullness of deity, meaning that he is fully God, the God-man, but also that fullness in the, in the John sense, John 1, how we have tasted of his fullness, grace upon grace. Not little candle flickers of grace in the law, but the full sunshine of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Almost as fully as chapter 3 is in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, how there is 
in otherworldly circumcision for the believer, Jew and Gentile, male and female, where all that circumcision signifies and seals, the removal of our hearts, our sinful hearts, to have new God-loving and God-glorifying hearts, has been accomplished for us in Christ and given to us in Christ as well. That means that our sins have been forgiven, we have been raised with Christ in His resurrection from the dead, and 2.15, Satan has been given a mortal wound from which he cannot recover, and his charges against us in God's court of law will not stick because those charges have been nailed to the cross. 2.16 and 17, but the believer has freedom from all the regulations of the old covenant, all that is attendant to tabernacle and temple worship, circumcision, Passover, Passover observance, and all the rest, because Christ is the substance of those things, and his appearance makes all the shadows flee away. 2.19, in union with our Savior, we have at the end of 19 there a growth that we grow with the growth that is from God. We are actually in the inner man transformed after the image of, of God's likeness, restored to his image to be reoriented to him in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 2.20 and 23, death with Christ has set us free from man-made regulations, free to observe what has been revealed in in Christ and in His Word for our, for our growth and grace. And at the end of, of chapter 2 there in verse 23, we are freed from what is useless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. By implication, we come now into contact with the life-giving grace of our Savior, which is useful, infinitely useful, for stopping the indulgences of our sinful hearts. And then most importantly, as we saw the last two times in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, we won't take time to reread it, but, but meditate upon it later on, how in this mountaintop of God's Word, there is resurrection with Christ in His resurrection from the dead, there is nearness to God in Christ's ascension to heaven, we have a new heavenly identity and orientation made citizens of heaven, and as our larger catechism indicates, we are spiritually and mystically, really and inseparably united to Christ as our head and husband by faith. And verse 4, capping it all off, not only do we have life in Christ, not only is our life hidden with Christ in God, but since that life cannot be separated from Christ, Christ is your life believer. And his return, as we see there in, at the end of verse 4, that will be the open unveiling, the public and, and concrete manifestation of all that we already have now and are in union with him. So it is at this point that we come to this command in verse 5 of chapter 3, because of all this, because of this, as we, as we sang earlier, this panoply of God, this fullness of grace, we have more than enough to go to battle against our sin and do nothing less than put it to death. A passage like this ought to be convicting. It is, it is good that a believer feels an appropriate kind of shame, 
not the shame of a slave, but the shame of having dishonored a father, a father who loves. It is, convi- it is appropriate that we be convicted in a passage like this because we are tempted to be lazy and be negligent in nursing our sinful desires and not choking them out. But we also ought to be encouraged in a passage like this because we can actually have success in this life. There can be actual conformity to Christ's image by his resurrection power putting to death the corruption that remains. There can be actual growth, not because we are heroes of the faith, but because of our hero Jesus Christ, his grace at work in our hearts. I almost entitled this sermon, Resurrection Killing. That's confusing, so I didn't do that. But the, the point of that is to say that out of the newness of life that is ours, chapter 2 and chapter 3, verses 1 through, far, through 4, how we've been raised with Christ, it is living out that resurrection life that we put our remaining corruption to death. Resurrection life in Christ means killing our remaining corruption. So we see this in a few ways this evening in verses 5 and 6. First of all, we want to see the command there, put your sin to death. Put your sin to death. That's the command in verse 5. This, in other words, is what John Owen and others call the mortification of sin. Mortification, putting sin to death. Let me read you a, a paragraph or two from John Owen that really helps the believer to sit up and pay attention and to take the sin that remains in in our hearts seriously. Owen says this, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sin does not only still abide in us, but it is still acting, still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the sinful flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is least suspicion. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if left alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to fullness. Men may come to that, that sin may not be heard speaking a scandalous word in their hearts, that is, provoking to any great sin with scandal in its mouth, but yet every rise of lust, might, ha- might it have its course, would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave, it is never satisfied. And herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin, by which it prevails to the hardening of men and so to their ruin. It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals, but having once got footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good its ground and presses on to some further degrees 
in the same kind. So do you hear how Owen, as a doctor of our hearts, helps us to see how this cancer spreads? It is nothing to mess with. It is nothing to treat lightly. Hence, we are commanded by God to have a holy violence against it. This command in verse 5 means exactly what it sounds like. Put to death. How do you put something to death? You cut off its life source, you starve it, refuse it, you get in the battle and do whatever is necessary to kill your sinful inclinations and desires. I think it's a value that we put a command like this in the history of God's covenant with man. God's people, by, by God's design, have a history of this holy violence. In the first estate of innocency, Adam, as our representative, was charged as a priest to keep the heavenly realm of Eden holy, to work it and keep it in that priestly kind of way, cultivating what is holy, keeping out what is unholy. As seen in the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, Adam, as our representative head, had the ability, had the commission to remove the lying serpent from that holy place, crushing him underfoot, showing him no mercy. Later on, when Joshua leads Israel into the promised land, Deuteronomy 7 into Joshua and Judges, they are commanded to show the nations no mercy, but devote them to complete destruction instead. Now, without getting into the details on this, suffice it to say that the conquest of Canaan is nothing like racist genocide or political power plays. It is rather the seed of the woman destroying the seed of the serpent so that Joshua can lead the people into occupying the land flowing with milk and honey to be in the dwelling place of God on earth. That connects to what our Savior has done because Jesus, our greater than Joshua, has led us not into a type of heaven on earth, but into heaven itself in his ascension. And because of his ascension into heaven and his indwelling our hearts, as we heard recently in the morning sermon, how Christ indwells our hearts by faith and we are his temple, we are to be just as merciless in our battle against sin as the, as the Israelites of old were in their conquest. Taking over Canaan provided a unique image, a, a unique and temporary er, image for the fundamentally spiritual battle that we are in, putting to death not sinners, but the sin that remains in our own hearts. We are to devote our sinful inclinations and urges to the same kind of complete destruction seen in the conquest of Canaan because we are citizens not of Canaan, but the heavenly Canaan above. That helps us to appreciate Paul's wording there in verse 5. You, you probably have in, in translation there, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That is appropriate. You may have a footnote your members that are on the earth, your members or your, your parts that are upon the earth. It's important that we appreciate that here in verse 5, there is the same kind of language in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are upon earth. So Paul commands us here in verse 5 to put to death 
our members, our parts upon the earth, similar to what we were to avoid up, up in verse 2. So these, these two realms, Christ ascended into heaven and us in heaven because we are in union with Christ in his ascension, but still we remain in this earthly pilgrimage. These realms of heaven and earth are all important to appreciate here. Christ's ascension into heaven makes us citizens of heaven, makes us to be heaven-oriented, heavenly-minded. We are to be spontaneously and fervently as God-centered as the angels in heaven are. Our catechism unpacks that for, for thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Earth, on the other hand, because of Adam's sin, because of Satan's victory in getting Adam to disobey God and plunge us into sin and misery, earth is a realm opposite of heaven. Heaven is the realm of creator worship for his own sake. Earth is the realm of creature worship or bringing in the creator if he subserves what I want, if he gets me what I need, if he's a lucky charm that is just right for my desires. Heaven is a realm of righteousness and life. Earth is a realm of sin and death. Heaven is a realm of complete selflessness in basking in the glory of God, feasting upon the, the river, the, the, the delights of his house, drinking of the river of his delights. And earth, by contrast, is a realm of selfishness, selfishness enthroning the creature instead of the blessed creator. So with these two realms in mind, how these how this new identity of heaven and orientation toward heaven that is fundamentally true of the believer, while there remains in us earthly proclivities and propensions, we are to put to death our members that are upon the earth, not in the sense of, of physical maiming. That was, that was dealt with earlier in Colossians chapter 2. If Christ was, was whipped and beaten and bruised for my transgressions, then that purchases uh, my body not to be treated as such, not for me to have to treat my body as such. So putting to death our members that are upon the earth means not that our physical bodies are inherently sinful, but rather that we are to stop using our physical bodies in the sinful ways listed here in verse 5. Richard Gaffin is, is helpful here. Gaffin says that the sins listed here qualify the verb put to death by specifying sins that are the objects of that mortifying work, indicating specifically what that mortification looks like. Believers are not to use their members for the sins listed here in their bodily existence and conduct. They are to avoid them. And Gaffin goes on to say, since seeking and minding the things above means negatively not using our members on earth for sinning, this seeking and minding consists positively in using our members for the opposite of sinning, for righteous living in our bodily existence. So this helps us to see that this is far from some sort of Gnostic and private sequestered off section of life where I do my religious thing over here and then in the rest of, of my life I do whatever else the world is doing. It is to show that both inwardly and outwardly, and how, how my heart is oriented, and in what my hands do and my mouth speaks. In every part of my existence, body and soul, I am to give up and put to death what is earthly 
and God dishonoring and to present myself as a living sacrifice for the glory of God and for my enjoyment of him. That's the first thing. Um, moving more, more quickly now. Secondly, we want to appreciate that Paul helps us to see that we are to call sin for what it is. Call sin for what it is. It's interesting here how this command, put to death what is earthly in you, there's not much of a, of a how-to here, as is often the case with, with God's commands. But as we look carefully, and Sinclair Ferguson helps us to do this, as we look carefully, we can see how Paul does not mince words about sin. We are helped in a how-to put our sin to death. He does not describe these things in verse 5 as a little bit naughty, as not very helpful. He calls a spade a spade. These are sins. These are against God's law. These are against God's nature. This is what remains in your heart, believer, and mine. There is still a universe of corruption to war with. Just to briefly cover this list, sexual immorality. If I tell you the, the word, you may, you may um, find it familiar, porneia. Do you hear pornography in there? This is not just physical adultery. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, it is inclusive of any lustful intent in the heart, which is where it begins. Jeremiah 7, even in the Old Testament, this, this spiritual nature of adultery is, is included. It was not that Old Testament, it was physical adultery. Now New Testament, it's spiritual. It was always of the heart. As in Jeremiah 7, God, God chastises his people for their whoredom, he says there very strongly, in, in their idolatry against him. So right off the bat here, Paul is calling sin what it is. It's not... Sexual immorality is not just one more look. I'm a red-blooded male. I have needs. This is not, this is not downplaying or, or treating lightly any sin. This is adultery. This is against the seventh commandment, and it is contrary to your new identity in Christ. Impurity. Any kind of unclean motive. Any kind of vileness. Again, we're calling it what it is passion, lustful desire, just briefly. Not, this is how I'm oriented, not I just want these things. You may want these things, but the wanting of such things is to be killed. Not just the thing that you want that is against God's character, but even the desire of it is to be put to death. Any desire that ignores or displaces God's supremacy in my heart and life. And then notice what Paul does here, gloriously, and, and revealing, I think, also of his own conversion and growth in grace, how he identifies the last two things in verse 5, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now think about how, how Paul talks about, how Paul is revealing of himself in his letters, how in Romans 7, he indicates that it was coveting in particular, that 10th commandment, that he would have known. He was very brilliant and bright and, and learned in God's word. But when God the Holy Spirit illumined his heart to see, thou shalt not covet, he realized, oh wait, I do that. I'm not like the Gentiles, but I do covet. And in Philippians chapter 3, um, similarly, how he rattles off that, 
very impressive resume of fleshly accomplishment. How, showing there to the Philippians, if anyone could earn eternal life, if anyone could merit right standing with God, I would have done it. I would have twisted God's arm to give me standing with him in heaven. Circumcised in the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, zealous, you know the list in Philippians 3. But those were all external things, weren't they? Those were all, those were all performances that eyes could see and we could check off and say, good job, Paul, you have earned heaven. But what's wondrous about God's law in the Ten, in the Ten Commandments, you can go through one through nine and sinfully convince yourself you can be self-deceived as you go through commands one through nine and think, I'm good to go. I've never erected a, a graven image. I've never bowed down to it. I've never taken God's name in vain. That's why I say Adonai, not Yahweh. I never do anything on the Sabbath day. I always respect mom and dad, etc. You can convince yourself in your sin that your hands are clean, but when you get to command number 10, thou shalt not covet, well, how would anybody know besides God of what you love and what you're oriented toward and what you think you deserve? Command 10, they all are spiritual in character, but command 10 really hits at home because there's nothing necessarily outwardly that humans would see about what you love and what you live for. Again, we're seeing here, as, as Paul calls it what it is, covetousness, idolatry. This is not, boy, I really want this thing. Why doesn't God give me what I want? Aren't I entitled to this, Lord? This is idolatry. It is putting yourself on the throne, and we would do this if we could in our sin, dethroning the one true God. Notice how, how Paul connects, how he identifies the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, with the first commandment against idolatry, showing that the law is interconnected. It is one thing. It is an organism. To break one is to break all. To keep one is to keep all. And it comes from a heart of grace, not from a mechanistic and, and sinful observation of minute details as the Pharisees would have done. This is a matter of the heart, not just outward acts. So showing there that in any orientation of wanting something that God in his providence has not already supplied, even wanting something that in itself is good, but wanting it too much, wanting it wrongly, thinking that God owes me this, that's not just now, now, it is idolatry. It is to put yourself on the throne and say, God, I know what is best, and you don't seem to get it here. It is idolatry. Listen to how our, some of our catechisms unpack the, the sinfulness of these sins. Short of Catechism 81, the Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Again, a matter of the heart, not just a not necessarily of the hands. Very beautifully in Heidelberg 95, idolatry, again, covetousness, which is idolatry, idolatry is to conceive or have something else in which to place our trust instead of 
or besides the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. It is not just the third world. It is not just the ancient cultures who are idolaters. It is anyone who looks to anything for refuge, for comfort, for identity that is not the one true and living God. You could be a Calvinist theologian and be an idolater to love facts and doctrines and not the God of the facts and doctrines. Seeking satisfaction in the creature, basically, rather than in the creator. Let's move on now um, quickly to the last two points. Thirdly, we want to see that we are to hate what God hates. Hate what God hates, and that's in verse 6. In light of all these things, listed in verse 5, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So again, we're talking about believers here and the sinful motions and inclinations that reside in the heart of believers, not something out there, but something in here. What is God's response to sin? He is a God of wrath. God hates sin, including the sin of the believer. Now, just quickly, you may have a, a note there for verse 6 that also includes upon the sons of disobedience. So it would read, on account of these, these, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Some manuscripts include that line. Some good manuscripts don't include it. Either way, it is true. It's clear in Ephesians 5 that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Those who live in these things, sexual morality and all the rest, those who live in and love these things will come under the wrath of God for these things. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. God's wrath was exhausted. The cup of wrath was, was drained upon the cross 2,000 years ago for the sheep. All who are in Christ will never know the avenging wrath of God because, praise God, our Savior took it in our place. But if your response to Christ bearing the wrath of God in your place for your sin is to say, now I can do whatever I want, you must examine yourself. The believer is to hate the sin that put Christ upon the cross. The debt is paid in full, but do not live incurring more debt as if, as if grace were cheap. The grace that pays for our sin is a grace that makes us to hate our sin and a grace that makes us and enables us to put our sin to death. So this continual lack of mortification, if you are characterized by a not calling sin what it is, of, of prizing sin because I can just ask God to forgive me, a continual lack of mortification that may reveal that you love what God hates and are a son of disobedience, destined for God's wrath. But all attempts of mortification, however imperfect, however occasional, however successful, all attempts of the children of God to mortify their remaining corruption reveals a new heart, reveals a new heart with new desires, a heart that longs to be aligned with God and His glory. It is good that we hate our sin 
because God hates it. And it is good that we do so because it is evidence that his grace is at work in our hearts. It is evidence that he is working, that we are more hating the things that he hates and that we want to be rid of them. And praise God, we will be rid of him when we see him face to face. In conclusion, let me make a few points briefly. To answer, how do we do this? It's a fair question. How can we grow in mortification? In Colossians, I think up to this point, most of all, is what we've seen already in the gift of prayer. That's back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father. This, is, this connects us to mortifying power and grace. As we said in that sermon, the, the spiritual wisdom there in chapter 1 verse 9 is capital S. It is wisdom and understanding of the Holy Spirit. So the Christ who indwells our hearts by His Spirit, His Spirit that fills the heavenly temple, fills us as His new covenant temple, and that is a power, an otherworldly power that will enable us to put our sin to death. It is God who provides mortifying grace. It is yours for the asking. Listen to Larger Catechism 195 as, as uh, before this prayer in Colossians, Jesus himself tells us to pray for mortification. In Larger Catechism 195, in the sixth petition, which is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Acknowledging that the most wise, righteous, and gracious God for diverse holy and just ends may so order things that we may be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive by temptations, that Satan, the world, and, all, and the flesh are ready powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us, and that we, even after the pardon of our sins by reason of our corruption, weakness, and want of watchfulness, are not only subject to be tempted and forward to expose ourselves unto temptations, but also of ourselves unable and unwilling to resist them, to recover out of them, and to improve them, and worthy to be left under the power of them. We pray that God would so over, overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh, restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace, and enliven us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people may by his providence be kept from being tempted to sin, or if tempted, that by his spirit we may be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation, or when fallen, raised again, and recovered out of it, and of a sanctified use and improvement thereof, that our sanctification and salvation may be perfected, Satan trodden under our feet, and we fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever." What I love about that answer is how real it is that it understands we don't want to kill sin. We love sin. That's why we pray to mortify it. And we, when we pray to mortify it, God knows that we have a hard time doing it. God knows that we can't do it.
But this command, as with all his commands, drives us to him to fulfill in us what we cannot do on our own. And when we fail to mortify our sin, we confess that sin and by his grace go to work in mortification again. Let me address three people. To the non-Christian, all that we've said here is something you cannot do. You cannot put to death your sin. You love it. You live in it. You are determined and enslaved by it. You are a child of disobedience. You love what God hates, and God's wrath will come upon you in fullness because of it. So confess your sin. Turn from your sin to a forgiving and loving and life-giving Savior and receive His forgiving and mortifying grace. To the believer, your union with Christ, believer, does not make mortification unnecessary. It makes it, as John Murray says, necessary and possible. We could add actual as well. Don't fall asleep in the battle. Depend upon the life-giving grace of God. Call your sin what it is. Show it no mercy by the power of God's mercy. And finally, to the struggling Christian, to the one who is listening and feeling defeated, feeling like such a failure, nothing I do works, nothing ever makes a difference, I keep struggling with the same sins over and over again. I'm such a failure. My counsel to you is, put that assessment of yourself to death. You are in Christ. If you are a failure, you are a failure in Christ. You are not your life. Christ is your life. He is the one who enables you to put your sin to death and to have success in doing so. You are, Psalm 17, the apple of God's eye. You are the beloved, part of the beloved bride of Jesus Christ. Don't think poorly about Christ's bride. He takes offense at that. All your failures to mortify your sin are nailed to the cross. Our half-hearted attempts, our even loving sin, our failures to, to obey this and all other commands, those are sins that have been paid for. That, that is part of the certificate of debt that's been nailed to the cross, part of the certificate that does not bear upon you any longer. Don't try to mortify your sin in your own strength. Abide in his love. Abide in him because as he tells us, apart from him, you can do nothing. And, and think about how our, our forefathers helped us to see how great Christ's love is to then enable us to put to death what remains in us. Think about how Samuel Rutherford talks about this in one of his letters. Rutherford says, Oh, that I could raise him, Christ, in the height of heaven and the breadth and length of ten heavens in the estimation of all his young lovers. For we have all shaped in Christ, but too narrow and too short, and formed conceptions of his love in our conceit, very unworthy of it. Oh, that men were taken and caught with his beauty and fairness. They would give over playing with idols." in which there is not half room for the love of one soul to satisfy itself. And man's love is but heart-hungered in gnawing upon bare bones. Their poverty is well-deserved, who will not come to him 
who has a world of love and goodness and bounty for all. We seek to thaw our frozen hearts at the cold smoke of the short-lived creature, and our souls gather neither heat nor life nor light. For these cannot give to us what they have not in themselves. Oh, that we could thrust in through these thorns and this throng of false lovers and be ravished and sick of love for Christ. We should find some footing, some room, some sweet ease for our tottering and and witless souls in our Lord. I wish it were in my power after this day to cry down all love but the love of Christ and to cry down all gods but Christ, all saviors but Christ, all well-beloveds but Christ, and all soul suitors and love beggars but Christ. So you see, in this one whose love is better than life, who is chief among 10,000, you have an ocean of strength and grace and store to put your sin to death, believer. Let me close with a prayer entitled Mortification and that wonderful collection of prayers from the Valley of Vision. Let us, <clears throat> let us pray this as I read it together. O divine lawgiver, I take shame to myself for open violations to thy law, for my secret faults, my omissions of duty, my unprofitable attendance upon means of grace, my carnality in worshiping thee, and all the sins of my holy things. My iniquities are increased over my head. My trespasses are known in the heavens, and their Christ is gone also, my advocate with the Father, my propitiation for sins. And I hear his word of peace. At present it is a day of small things with me. I have light enough to see my darkness, sensibility enough to feel the hardness of my heart, spirituality enough to mourn my want of a heavenly mind, but I might have had more. I ought to have had more. I have never been straightened in thee. Thou hast always placed before me in infinite fullness, and I have not taken it. I confess and bewail my deficiencies and backslidings. I mourn my numberless failures, my incorrigibility under rebukes, my want of profiting under ordinances of mercy, my neglect of opportunities for usefulness. It is not with me as in months past. O recall me to thyself and enable me to feel my first love. May my improvements correspond with my privileges. May my will accept the decisions of my judgment. My choice be that which conscience approves. And may I never condemn myself in the things I allow. As we come to a passage like this, I'm convinced that Would God peel back one corner of our hearts to see, to have a glimpse of the universe of evil that resides within, we would weep for all eternity in shame. But I'm just as convinced that had we a sight of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, dwelling on a throne of grace and not of condemnation, if we saw him for who he is in his life-giving word, we would love what he loves, hate what he hates, and run vigorously in the race set before us till we see him face to face. And that is ours, dear believer. May the Lord work in us what is pleasing in his sight.